Welcome to the Story Crafters Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. Story Crafters Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Before we get into this week's episode, with Steve Bowyer, science fiction and fantasy author and co-owner of Athon Books, let's hear from Jim Butcher, who has some fantastic advice about writing short stories. Writing short stories is very good for me as a writer. I really hate writing them, but it's good for me. Uh, uh, short stories, I find short stories to be very difficult in, compa- in comparison to novels, uh, because you've got to do everything that you do in a novel, but you only got about 5% of the space to do it in. It's like trying to have a knife fight in a phone booth. Um, the, the most important thing that I've found for it is the, is the framing of it, you know, to, to figure out exactly how much of a time period you're going to cover, you know, exactly which things are going to happen during that time, and, and, to, and to figure out how to make that an appropriate, you know, an appropriate length for a short story. Uh, but the biggest thing is, uh, what, I, what, I've, what I tend to have found out is that short stories um, cover about as much as an episode of television. Uh, uh, you know, like one episode of one episode of Buffy. That's about a short story's worth of material, I think. Right. Uh, uh, so, and, and that's what I and that's what I try and cover uh, uh, is something you know something along that nature. You know, I know a short story is probably going to be set over the course of several hours if I'm writing a Dresden Files book or a Dresden Files story. Uh, uh, and so, once I I know that, then I could say, okay, well, here's what's going to happen during that time period, and, and then I can I, once I block that out, then that helps me that helps me narrow down. Um, uh, exactly what I'm going to need to do to get the story done. Um, that 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 said, um, I mean they're still I mean they're, they're they're still super difficult. But I think I think outlining helps you so much more in the short stories than it does in like a novel uh, because there's so much more room to play and improvise in the novel. In the short story, you don't get nearly that much that much space. Well, thanks for joining me for the inaugural episode of the Story Crafters Cafe. I am Hank Garner your host and today i am welcoming a dear friend of mine steve bollier who is uh an amazing writer in his uh in 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 his own regard uh he writes under the pen name of jamie castle and we're going to talk about some of the the things that he's written today but he's also the co-owner of athon books one of the most interesting small press publishers that I know of in publishing today. They specialize in fantasy and sci-fi and empowering authors to, uh, you know, uh, authors that, that, uh, that, that may be uh, publishing in the indie space, uh, but need some help. And they have found a really unique way to help people get their stories out to the world. And I really wanted to highlight them today. Welcome to the show, you. Steve. Thanks, Hank. Yeah, so Steve, um, if uh, well, well, I'm glad you uh, glad you joined me today. Um, I, I've been thinking of uh, you know the the other podcast I do, Author Stories. We always begin with the same question, and it's a great way to kind of kick off um, uh, to get people feeling you know uh, the warm fuzzies about their mm-hmm. writing life. Um, so I've been thinking of a way to kick this off, and um, what is one piece of writing advice that you have received, good or bad, 
um, that has stuck with you. Maybe someone gave you something that was very motivational, or maybe someone gave you horrible advice that you think back on. Um, can, can you can you point to anything like that? I could point to a hundred things like that. First, first, let me say this. It's, it's really nice to do this video, right? Cause we've yeah. done author stories audio for so long. Uh, you and I, it's nice to be face to face and, and talk. Um, as far as the, the question goes, I, I literally could give you a hundred answers. Um, but let me start with the best advice I've ever received. And that was, if you're writing a book, the best way to write a book is to write a book. And I know that that sounds so absurd, but I spent maybe 20 years of my life um, trying to write a book. And I think that that we're going to, with this podcast, you're going to reach people that have done it a million times and people who have been trying a million times to do yeah. it. And I had manuscript after manuscript after manuscript that were, some of them were 90,000 words long. And I couldn't even see the end of that because... I'm a pantser by nature. So like I, I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know the direction and the story just kept doing things. But when I finally finished my first book, which was in just 2017, and since then I've written 17 books and I have another 13 that I'm currently writing. Um, the best advice at the time was in order to finish writing a book, You've got to continually write that book. I would write and stop and drop and start something else. And I just get excited about new projects. And when rubber hits the road, authoring is a job that requires the commitment and the uh, intentionality that I think any other job has. And so since then, I've realized, OK, if I start writing a book, this book needs to get finished. And so I've even got books that I wrote that I've never published and I may never publish or that I just haven't found the right direction to publish those books. But if I start a project, the project gets finished. And along with that, the advice of um, understanding word count goals is vital. Uh, and this is something that we share across the board with all of our authors. If you're going to write a book, you have to have an intentional goal in mind. And so for me, because we run Athon, because Rhett and I run Athon, my goal count has reduced drastically. But, you know, I used to have a 2,000 word a day goal. And if I didn't achieve that goal, I didn't go to bed that night. Um, you know, I, did, I wrote until I achieved that goal. And for me personally, um, my goal was not just to write 2,000 words. My goal was to write 2,000 good words. And I know a lot of authors who, you know, can throw down 10,000 words a day. But when it comes to the editing process, which, um, you know, as authors, we're, we're sort of supposed to edit ourselves, too. Sure. When it comes to the editing process, you could take out 40 percent of those words and they don't matter anymore. Um, and I see that. On a constant basis. Uh, so best advice to write a book, you need to write a book and to write a book, you have to have a goal and achieve those goals no matter what. Uh, worst advice. Um, I can't pick out the worst advice. There's so much <laughs> bad advice. Going There's on. so much bad. And advice. it changes year to year, depending on how the marketing or how the publishing industry is going. You know, it used to be if you had a 150,000 word book, split it into two books 
Now it's, you know, write as many words in a book as you possibly can to get the Kindle Unlimited money and yada, yada, yada. Really write a good book. Just write a good book. And if you don't know how to market it, then find a publisher that knows how to market it. Yeah. So speaking of being a pantser um, and and editing your work as you go, um, you know, some of the the advice that that you hear a lot is to turn off your internal editor and get as many um as as rough a first draft as possible done and then go back and edit yourself um does do you think that being a pantser has anything to do with your um need to self-edit and to clean up your draft as you go do do those things uh, does one inform the other at all I think it's it's tough for me to answer because I was an editor before I was an author, right? So, um, you know, I would never suggest to anyone else to be their own final editor, but I'm my own final editor. Um, I do often have proofreaders that will check it for different things, but um, for me, my first draft, it, the goal for my first draft is always that I could hit publish and not be concerned with the fact that I hit publish. Um, I do often go through the manuscript when I'm done, but it doesn't necessarily, it usually doesn't result in fewer words. It results in potentially more words. Um, and that, that I think is a, an answer, a direct answer to your question, right? Because as a pantser, as you're writing, you tend to sort of vomit draft. Um, I personally just vomit draft in such a way where I don't, I don't over talk. I sort of under talk. Um, you know, I might come to a, a section in the book where it's very dialogue heavy and at the end of the first draft, it's literally just person talking back to person in a white room. Right. And then as I go back through it, I realize, oh, well, people need to understand where they are, sort of what they're doing. I don't believe in a lot of stage direction. I don't you know, there's a there's some advice out here. I'll, I'll give you this as a piece of really what I think is really bad advice, and that is. Um, avoid dialogue tags. I think dialogue tags are a vital to the story and the reader understanding who's speaking. And I think that when authors um, forego dialogue tag for action, Mm -hmm. right? Like, hey man, how are you doing? He picked up his cup of coffee and drank, right? Like, sure, now I know who picked up, Hank picked up his cup of of coffee and drank, right? That's fine. I now know that Hank's the one talking, but Hey man, how's it going? Hank said, picking up his cup of coffee, achieves the same thing without making the reader have to work for understanding who wrote it. And we see this all the time where we'll have like a full page of dialogue and, you know, maybe there's a dialogue tag every six things, but then the reader has to keep track of the back and forth. And oftentimes you've got more than one person speaking or more than two people speaking in a, in a, in a section. And it's like, it gets overwhelming. And then with the advent of, I say advent, I mean, it's been around for 40 years, but like with, with audiobooks becoming so popular, authors tend to think fewer dialogue tags is what's necessary. But I, I mean, I'm way bigger in audio. I've sold hundreds and hundreds of thousands of audiobooks, and I don't change that at all because the reader, the narrator is so used to He's talking like this. This is part of it, he said. He's talking like this. This is part of it, he said, right? They're so used to dropping that tone into he said 
that right. it doesn't affect anything and the reader can still follow everything that's going on. So uh, we shifted there back to the first question, but like. No, no that's fine. That's fine. Um, as, as someone who began as an editor and then um, became a writer or, or got the confidence to write or however you want to look at it, um, I, I've known some editors that are editors and um you know you uh you ask what what do you think you have a novel in you and and they're like oh no i'm i'm perfectly content to just be an editor um what was what was your feeling about that when when you were just an editor and i don't mean just an editor that's you, you know what i mean um you know what was it that that gave you the confidence or 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 whatever it was that that had you take that next step and and write your own story well for a long time i was um i was really solely editing brett c bruno's stuff who's my writing partner and over the course of time i realized that i was sort of actually just co-writing his books with him right because my one of the reasons I don't edit anymore is because I over edit. The only times that I edit and I say over edit, I don't think it's over editing. Um, <clears throat> but I you know, there there tends to be pages and pages of red um, because as a and I think that's the answer, right? When you're when you get to a point where you're reading somebody else's book and all you want to do is actually write into this book and help process what the author's intention is. Uh, you probably should be writing instead of editing. Um, I'll, I'll still do editing jobs for Athon when when an author comes to us, and uh, specifically if they're a really popular author in one area and they really need help. Um, I, I don't know how to I don't know how to word it, but like I'll take on the really heavy editing projects where I know that they're not going to be upset if I just wrote another chapter for them. It's like um, developmental editing on steroids. It's developmental editing. Only I'm not good. En- I'm not. I'm not good enough at it, honestly. To <laughs> to type in a comment. This is what you need to do. I just do it. Yeah. And and so some authors are okay with that. Most are not okay with that. As a matter of fact, in the publishing industry, one of the biggest stigmas is that if you have an editor, they're going to change your voice. Um, first of all, let me just say from a publisher standpoint. We published 700 books. I don't think a single one of our authors would ever say we changed their voice. The, a bad editor changes your voice, which I would argue makes me a bad editor um, because I never, I never, um, by by writing into something, your voice automatically becomes part of it. And so most editors are not interested in rewriting your book. Um, they're going to take what you've written. And they're going to make it better by changing the word flow in a sentence. And, you know, typically if our authors have a style that we realize that's not my style, but it, it works. Right. Like there's a lot of times when a sentence structure works really well, but there's also another way to do it. Right. And so like a sort of bad editor, if I could say it that way, will will do will change it just because they think that that's the way it should be. A good editor will go, no, this is his voice, her voice. We'll keep it as it is. It's not my preference, but this is how they write. In in 2007, when you began writing. Um, 17. 17, I'm, oh, I yeah. meant to say. I'm sorry. Um, I mean, that's, that's five years ago, Steve. And I mean, I, tip, I technically started writing 
late 90s, right? Like 1999, I started writing books. And then I was a pastor for years. So like all of my writing was nonfiction. So I, I still continued writing for years and years and years. But like 2017 was the first time I finished a full fiction novel. That that was kind of my story, too, is that I had done lots of nonfiction writing for years. And um, and I think building those muscles, um, none of that writing time is wasted. Uh, all of that goes to, uh, you know, your writer fitness, you know, if you will. Um, but in 2017, five years ago, um, the Kindle revolution had happened. It had um, come changed the the reading and publishing landscape um irrevocably you know that we're never going back to before the kindle or or digital readers you right. know that because there, there's several in the space but you know let let's be honest kindle is is the 800 pound gorilla yeah. um how has publishing because not only are you a writer you're a publisher as well um how has how have things changed in that five intervening years since you started writing um a lot has has continued to change and you alluded to um audiobooks uh, audiobooks have been around forever but there has been a sea change in the last few years three or four maybe where it just seems like that it, well we know for a fact that is the fastest growth um track in publishing but uh what else has changed and if you don't mind why have audiobooks just skyrocketed the last few years? Well, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, you know, I could probably point to a bunch of micro changes over the course of the five years, but on a, on a wide top down view, not much has changed. Um, everyone, you know, people keep trying to sort of reinvent the wheel and you've got several different markets, right? Like Walmart bought Kobo at one point. Right. And, you know, Barnes and Nobles tried to do all the things that they've tried to do with Nook. But like you said, Amazon is the 800 pound gorilla. And, you know, one of my favorite things to, to talk to people or to, to, to kind of zero in on is that, especially in our industry, we're sci-fi people, right? Like we're fantasy and sci-fi people. In the sci-fi industry, writers typically take a, uh, their, their big bad villain or their overarching uh, controller is always this business this company who has taken over the world and the reality is that has happened and there's a lot of people trying to fight it based on fear based on on whatever you know diversifying their profiles all of those things but Athon really um accepts the fact that amazon is currently the only way to go um we don't bother with wide i think that there's probably some listeners that that love wide and have excelled on wide and you know I, I tend to think one of two ways first of all it's either a genre that we're not involved in which there are genres that are very acceptable on wide you've got romance and thriller and there's a lot of readers yeah. outside of but as far as fantasy and sci-fi it's it's a death sentence to do anything other than amazon because the the sci-fi community fantasy community are kindle unlimited readers and we make more money on kindle unlimited than we make with with book sales the book sales are are used as a mechanism to get the book in front of KU readers because we know that that's where the, the real income comes from and that's where the real fan base is for this genre. 
So what has changed? A lot has changed. People are trying to go uh, direct to sales, right? Selling their books from their websites. To me, that adds another element, an extra element of marketing that that I we personally don't understand at this point. There are authors that can successfully do it because they've built a fan base, but I tend to look at it and go, okay, where's the new fan base going to come from? Right. Amazon organically delivers readers, new readers, and there's new readers hourly, right? Like people who have never picked up a book in their life that go, this Kindle thing is kind of cool, or they have it on their phone and they go, I don't, you know, I've never read a book. Let me read a book. And, um, and Amazon targets those people. As a publisher, we don't sell to, to humans. We sell the machines that sell to humans. And we count on their algorithms and understanding their algorithms in, in order to get people who we want reading our books to read our books. Audio, I, I'm an audio junkie. I listen to about 200 yeah. books a year. And um, as far as I, author, I couldn't do what I do if it weren't for audio books. 100% no. There's, there's no way I could keep <clears throat> up with everything I need to keep yeah. up with. And there's the argument is audio listening really reading? And I, I don't give I don't give a crap. You're digesting yeah. the material. Right. And, you know, there was a point in time where uh, written word wasn't it wasn't the way that you digested stories. It was somebody sitting around a campfire or around the right. hearth or, you know, at the dinner table, whatever it was. Right. And it didn't change the fact that you were digesting a story. Um, and so audio, I think, has grown so much because our lives have become so chaotic in this modern age. And what's interesting, and I think we could talk about this in a different podcast even, right? Or yeah. a conversation that had nothing to do with writing. Uh, technology has not made us less busy. It's made us more busy. Right. And because we're more busy, people are traveling to and fro and doing their thing. And, and it's easy. You could just listen to a book while you do it. Yeah. I listen to a book while I mow my lawn, while I clean the kitchen, while I go shopping, while I drive here, while I do. I mean, literally, I'm just always listening to books. Um, and as a writer, beautiful advice, uh, if you're a writer, you need to be a reader. You have to like, yeah, it, I can always tell when I get a manuscript from a writer who's not a reader because they don't know what a book looks like. You might tell a great yeah. story, but you have an entire page of text with no paragraphs and you have dialogue <laughs> buried inside of a paragraph where people are going to read right over it and not even realize it's dialogue. Yeah. Um, so you have to, even as a listener, you have to also read a book every now and then so that you understand how to structure a book. Right. Cause readers know what a book is structured like. And as soon as they see a wall of text, they're out. They, you can't comprehend a wall of text. Right. Yeah. Looking at a page, uh, and seeing, um, there, there's almost an art to seeing how the text breaks down and without reading a word on it. You can look at the page and you can sense something about the what the author's trying to tell you yeah. in, in, a, in a weird way. And I know that sounds woo-woo and all this, but but there is something that gets brought across just in, in the right. way that, that it looks and feels. Um you were you're publishing and um uh you mentioned Rhett Bruno, who is your your writing partner, but also your partner in Athon. Um at one point you realized that some things that you had learned in writing and publishing might be helpful to other people as well. To tell me the, the the story of Athon and and why you decided to uh, to help other people um, 
you know, to to do the things that you had uh, begun to crack the code on. In 2017, um, there there were there were other people involved in this, but I'm going to leave names out for sake of clarity and, yeah. and conciseness. Um, Rhett, I was introduced to Rhett by somebody that we knew, and he needed a book lo- or he needed a logo for a project called Sci-Fi Bridge, which is a newsletter, yeah. right, that uh, blasts emails, and it's a free newsletter, typical to. Um, something like BookBub, but we do it for free. And he needed a logo and somebody knew I made logos. So he contacted me and he and I started talking. And at one point, um, you know, we got to know each other and, and he realized that my personality is, is a personality that's never really serious. I make a lot of jokes and I goof around a lot. And he said, hey, I have this project. I really want to write it, but I don't have the, the funny bone to do it. It needs to be lighthearted and sort of... Um, pulpy and and fun and and would you be interested in working on it with me and that was a project called the Luna Missile Crisis which was actually the very first thing Rhett and I ever wrote together um, but it wasn't the first thing we published together which fantastic book if we're talking about author advice don't yeah. publish a book the moment it comes out or I'm sorry the moment it comes out of you the moment that you write yeah. it get a plan have a you know and we didn't have a plan for Luna because Luna was a standalone novel in a world where standalone does not work it's series is what sells. And so we needed the exact process to, to make that work. And what ended up happening was we got a deal with Audible Originals. They did the whole thing with Audible Originals and Ray Porter. And it was only audio for a year. Then we released the ebook. And now we've got, you know, film and TV stuff going on with that that we can't really talk about. But when you wait, doors open in ways that they might not if you just force something out. So after we were done with that, we we had really just discussed that that was that was sort of it. We weren't planning on writing more together, but I started writing this fantasy project, and uh, once again, it had no direction. I hadn't yet learned. I had already gotten the advice on how to write a book and what to do, but I I didn't I wasn't getting it there. I, I wasn't processing in my mind yet. It was sort of still percolating. And so I started writing this fantasy project and uh, I kept bugging Rhett. I'm like, hey, would you read this? Would you develop mental edit it for me? Would you help me figure out what direction to go? And he was, no, I don't want to do that. No, I don't. You know, he was a sci-fi only kind of guy. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And finally, I broke him down and he read it. <laughs> and <clears throat> he liked it was only like twenty five thousand words. This wasn't like a lot. But he really liked the idea and the characters that I was working with, but what, but it didn't have the story. And Red is a story master. Yeah. Master of story. I don't know anyone who knows story better than him. Um, so he came back to me, he goes, listen, your writing is great, but you know, it's, but it's not, it's, it's not going anywhere that you want it to go. And I said, then write it with me. And he said, no. And then for three or four more weeks, I'm like, you're writing this with me, right? <laughs> So then anyway, that turned into a six book, million word, hundred hour long audio book series called the Buried Goddess Saga. And that was the start of we got this uh, what at the time was a, a an audio advance deal that was more money than I had seen. I was a pastor, right? Like I, I made more money on that audio advance than I made in the whole year working as a pastor. And so <clears throat> we. um we ended up doing that project together, self-publishing the ebook, and and it did very well. And we uh, we began the talks of if we know how to do this for ourselves, 
And Red had gone through, without telling his story, Red had gone through a deal with Random House where he had a series called The Children of Titan, which was Titanborn book one. And then they, you know, the way the, the traditional publishing industry works is different from us. We signed three books at a time and we won't sign less. The traditional publishing industry will sign a book and see how it does before they right. commission a second book. And so Rhett ended up sort of getting dragged through the, the weeds on that. And um, end of the story is that he bought the rights back, relaunched it himself, probably sold more copies of it in, in one day than Random House did in the three years that they had it. So we just started talking, hey, if we know how to do this for us, why couldn't we do this for other people? And Rhett had had a dream long before I did to own a publishing company. Um, but at the time, I was a full-time pastor. He was a full-time architect. It wasn't really something that we thought we could do. Uh, fast forward to summer of 2018, I surprisingly, out of nowhere, got let go from my job at the church. Um, catastrophic, heartbreaking, confusing thing that happened in my life. This was in August, and uh, it happened on a Saturday. And on Sunday, I told Red, I'm like, I don't, I don't even know what I'm going to do now. I think, I mean, I started a church immediately um, and I, I really felt like God was saying, this isn't what you're supposed to do. And, and some of you may not understand that concept, but that's that I, I heard God say, this is not what you're supposed to do. And I shut down that whole thing. And I said, Rhett, what are we doing? And he said, I'll quit my job. And we'll start Athon. And literally a week later, Rhett quit his full time job. Uh, we lived off of the advance that we got from the Buried Goddess Saga. And four months later, we had our first Athon release, which was a book called Make Me No Grave by Haley Stone, which was, first of all, one of the best books I've ever read in my life. Fantastic book. Secondly, it was a huge risk because, you know, Rhett, she and Rhett knew her from Random House. She was also a Random House author, and uh, things didn't go quite the way she wanted to either. Um, and nobody wanted Make Me No Grave because it was a weird Western that wasn't weird enough, so they wanted the fantasy elements removed. But then other people wanted more of the fantasy elements because it sat somewhere in a really this is just a Western with this really small thing that also happens. Right. Um, Rhett and I decided to publish it knowing that weird Westerns are – a difficult sell. Uh, meanwhile, my biggest project ever was a weird Western, and I'm sure we could talk about that now or later. But um, Haley Stone's book blew up, and especially for a standalone weird Western by a relatively unknown author, by a completely unknown publisher, uh, it did phenomenally well. Um, and then we got lucky enough to have our next few releases be tremendously popular authors. One of them was Paul Anthony Jones, who has passed since since then. Um, and his series, uh, This Alien Earth, did phenomenal things for us. And then Joshua Guyu's Commune series, uh, which was bonkers on audio. He just didn't know how to do it on ebook. We took over the ebook, and that went phenomenally well. So 2019 was a, a tremendous year for us. We started the whole thing on a $4,000 Kickstarter. And from there, we've built over the course of three years to um, what I could almost factually say is one of the biggest 
independent sci-fi fantasy publishers that's ever existed. <coughs> Excuse me. You guys focus on sci-fi and fantasy and and you understand your market of readers and where they read and how they purchase books and and uh, you know you you mentioned that earlier that that your readers um you know a lot about your readers and you tailor your business to where you know you are going to sell books um if someone is breaking into writing and uh is it important for them to understand um, what it is they're writing and um, and how the market may be different for someone that writes sci-fi stories as opposed to someone who writes romance stories or, you, you know, how, I, you know, decades ago, it might not matter what it is that you are writing. Um, the process was going to be the same. Um, you're going to query an agent and that agent is going to help you get your book in shape and then you're going to, you know, submit it to every publisher out there but but those things have changed mm -hmm. as well and and maybe it's you know due to the kindle revolution and sure. the audiobooks and, and all of that but um if if someone is 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 trying to break into writing what would you say to them about narrowing down what it is you're focusing on because that's going to depend on how you're going to get the book out to the world sure uh, let me start by saying that I, I have an agent. Um, my agent is one of the best in the industry. He represents John Scalzi and Marco Kluse and, and all of those guys. I don't have anything against agents, so let's just foundationally say that. But the, the age of the gatekeeper yeah. has, is quickly coming to an end because the internet and the way that we read and write uh, has opened up to a point where authors can now submit to companies like us completely unaged. Um, as a matter of fact, we often prefer it that way, uh, not because it's more beneficial to us, uh, which it is, uh, but also because it's more beneficial to the author. The author retains more of their royalties, they retain more of their control, um, it's far easier for us to communicate one-on-one -on -one with the author, and, and we do. We are very hands-on with our authors. Um, we consider every author that we have part of our family, and it's just me and Rhett. So our relationship with authors are, um, are, are what I hope I could say, are deep and meaningful. And, um, and so with all of that said, the writing process has changed. What hasn't changed, um, well, I don't even need to say it that way. Let me just say this. When we start to write books as authors, we tend to think of the, the, the unique new thing that no one's ever read before that people are going to be blown away by because it's so unique and new. And first of all, King Solomon said it 6,000 years ago, nothing new, is, there's nothing new under the sun, right? Like, and that right. stands today more than ever. There is no such thing as a unique story. Uh, there's a unique way of telling a story, but there's really no unique ideas. If it's so unique that you think it is, like, and I understand that unique is not a word that requires things like so or very, it's a, you know, but you know, you know what I'm right. saying? Yeah. Um, what readers want that readers don't even, I think, know they want is the same story told a different way. Mm. We could look at the most popular things in existence, 
let's throw Mandalorian out there. It's every Western your dad watched. Yes. With a guy in a helmet. That's it. It's yeah. it, that's all the story is. Um, there's a term in the industry called right to market, which means you're writing not necessarily what you want to write, but what you know the reader wants to read. In romance, um, I have several romance author friends that write the exact same book over and over again with different characters, different settings. It's the Hallmark Channel yeah. on written word. And how many people do we know that will sit in front of the Hallmark Channel watching the same story over and over again? And there's actually this joyous predictability to it where you know what's going to happen before you happen. And that makes you before it happens, that makes you feel good that you've sort of <laughs> predicted that guy's going to get with that girl. But that right. girl actually likes that guy. But then in the end, they're going to like you have that joy of, of yeah. knowing what's going to happen in the fantasy and, and sci-fi markets. Um, it's harder because it's not grounded to the real world. You're inventing everything. And sometimes those inventions can get away from you and be, and start to work against you. Um, it's hard to keep track of your world building. But knowing who you're writing for, which is something that Rhett and I actually, we, we, we yes, we're a publisher, but one of the things that we actually – uh, if I could say pride ourselves in is that we're actually managers. Um, we, we are author managers. We're, we're here 24 seven to direct you in the best way to tell your story, to sell your books. Um, although we, uh, we like to empower our authors to tell their story. We're also going to be the very first one to say that doesn't sell. Right. And it's not us going, we, we don't sell that. It's us going, let's look at the Amazon top 100 list over the course of the last several years it's all the same stuff it's all the same authors it's all the same story it's all the same concept told differently and that's that's sometimes upsetting for an author to hear but at the onset of your writing career and again i know i'm talking to people who have done this a million times and people who are but i'm talking to those who are starting yeah. up at the onset of your career You've got to determine what your goal as an author is. We have some authors that don't care if they sell anything. They just want to write a book and have it released. Uh, then there's authors that need this to be a full-time job. And in this society where there's 1.6 billion books a year published on Amazon, um, you've really got to know to make money. The only way to do that is to write very quickly or to write a whole bunch of books and then not release them immediately, right? You you have to feed the algorithm continually. Yeah. A book every month or two for a period of time. I mean, that that's just the only way to do it because people actually don't read read authors anymore. They read genres. Um, I once asked somebody, you know, who your favorite author is, and they said, I don't, I don't know who any of the authors I read are. And I said, well, what do you read? And they go, I just type in dragon books and fantasy and just read whatever the new dragon books are. So we tend to think if somebody loved our book, that means they're going to read our other books, but they don't even know what our name was. Right. Go through reviews in Amazon. How many of them just say the author? They don't even they don't even say the author's name. They just said the author did this, 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 and this because they don't know your name. They never will know your name. Wow, that's it's weird. Uh, it, it's weird. It's a little demoralizing. Um, but <laughs> you know, I'm I I want to um not challenge you but i i want you to to clarify something sure. for me um because 
if we're writing to market and that if most readers are looking for a particular book, um, how does something like Haley Stone's uh, book factor into that, the weird Western or your black badge series, um, which is going bonkers uh, right now. You guys have got something amazing going on with this weird Western fantasy Dresden meets, um, you know, tombstone kind of um, thing. How do those things factor into if we're writing to market and we are paying attention to the tropes um, that matter to people, how do we introduce these new things that that tend to be genre benders and and kind of bust open the gates to something new? How does that happen? Well, our advice to authors is always that mashups don't work the way you think they're going to work. That's a that's a standard. That's a general statement, right? Because there's always the outliers, and Rhett and I are constantly reminding people of the outliers. Dead Acre and the Black Bat series is an outlier. I don't know, you know, when we first wrote that. I had a a hundred authors come to me with their weird Western ideas, basically saying now that weird Western sell, uh, would you like to publish this weird Western that I wrote? And my answer was no, every time I told them. And then I walked them through the process that was black badge. And I'll get to that in a second, but let's touch on Haley Stone for a second. Haley Stone was a shock to us. Yeah, it was, it was a surprise. We marketed the hell out of it. Um, Marketing was a, a, a big portion of why it sold. First of all, if you look at the cover, you'll notice that it is red with literally the Red Dead Redemption font. Uh, and we marketed it to Red Dead Redemption readers and we marketed yeah. it hard or players. I mean, hard in that way and shameful. I don't care. It worked. Um, it worked very, very well, but we still hesitate when somebody comes to us with a weird Western because for every make me no grave or black badge, there's hundreds and hundreds of weird Westerns that have not sold. Yeah. Uh, when, when black badge, uh, book zero dead acre came out, we have the same narrator who's Roger Clark, who, who played Arthur Morgan in red dead redemption Two. He is our narrator. Um, we had another weird Western author who also had Roger Clark, come to us and they were super excited that now that dead acre is selling that they felt like theirs was going to sell too. That didn't happen. There was no crossover. Um, With black badge, I could speak to the plan, right? Because I told you when you finish a book, it doesn't mean you have to release a book. Here was the process for black badge. Uh, I had lost my job. I had a, a garage in my office. It was freezing in there. It was the middle of winter. I had a space heater next to me that barely worked, and I had this idea to write this character named James Crowley, and he was going to be the angel of death reincarnated. Um, There was a backstory that I had about him being Azrael, who actually stabbed Lucifer in the back, and because of that, he was punished to Earth, right? There was this huge idea that I had. And I sat down and I wrote 10,000 words about James Crowley entering into this town called Dead Acre. Uh, I showed it to Rhett. Rhett's like, the voice is fantastic. This character's exactly what I want to write. But there's no point in writing a weird Western. So let's not do it. This is after Haley Stone. This is after we watched Haley Stone's success. 
So then uh, we had released Luna Missile Crisis with Audible Originals and their vice president came to us and said, hey, do you have anything else that you want to sell to us? But we want it to be shorter, somewhere around 30,000 words. And I said, well, we've got this James Crowley thing. Mm -hmm. We let him read it and he goes, I love it. Finish it. So Rhett and I were then challenged with taking what I wrote in one day, a 10,000 word day like I was talking about earlier, that was just yeah. vomit, right? Like it was just, this is a character that would shut up in my head and I needed <laughs> to get it on paper. So we threw out almost everything that I wrote. I mean, it was basically just me wanting to write something. And then Rhett and I sat down and we developed the story and we wrote that. So here's point number one, Audible Originals was the plan. That was it, right? Then we're sitting around going, who do we want to narrate this? And I said, man, I wish the dude from Red Dead Redemption narrated books. Red hops on Audible. He goes, oh, he does. So we email Audible Studios. Hey, can we get Roger Clark for this? Email back. I love that idea. Let me reach out to him and see what we could do. Next day, Roger Clark's in. So we've got Audible Originals, Dang. Roger Clark. Right. And then I found I went on DeviantArt.com and I found artists who did exactly what I was thinking. Now, in my mind, the art, the author, or the, the um, James Crowley looked like Cullen from Hell on Wheels. Yeah. Right. That was that was who I was. Picturing. Cullen Bohannon. Yep. So I was going through all these. I typed in weird Western. That's literally what I weird Western in DeviantArt. And I found this guy, Stephen S. Gibson, who had some of the sickest, most amazing, weird Western art. I emailed him. I said, what would it cost me to get you to commission a project? He's like, I'm not really doing that. I'm like, I don't care. I need you to do this. So over the course of the next few months, I courted him sort of in the process of, could you please do this for me? Uh, I told him all the things we had lined up and I'm like, it needs your art. So he did the Dead Acre art and it was like the perfect artwork for this project. Additionally, we made a deal with Audible Studios or Audible Originals that we would forego royalties in exchange for a per word rate where we would never see royalties after that if it goes into what's called Audible Plus, which is free to every member on Audible. Mm -hmm. So the plan then just became get as many listeners as humanly possible on this project. We made nothing on that. Listen, I made I've made more. I don't know, insert thing that you do. I've made more mowing lawns, right? Like than I made on this project, but it garnered somewhere around 5,000 reviews by this point, which means there's over a hundred thousand listeners to this. And then that led us to a bidding war with several different publishers. Now remember I'm a publisher. I didn't feel confident publishing this, even though it had already gained hundreds of thousands of listeners. I still didn't feel comfortable being the one to publish this. So we had a bidding war with, Every publisher, like they just, everyone wanted this. And we ended up going with Blackstone Publishing. They offered us a, an astronomical amount of money for this project. And um, we just had them guarantee that we'd use the same artist. We'd use the same narrator. And they weren't, they're like, why would we do anything but that? So I, I say that whole story to say this. There was a plan every step of the way to put us in a position to make the most successful 30,000 uh, 30, word story possible. And it worked. It worked because we had all the elements. If we, I don't know if it would have worked if we had two out of three elements or 
whatever. But like, it was just the perfect setup for this. And we could never relive that. I don't lie to anyone. There's a lot of authors out there who have had what we call sort of viral or, or, or lucky success who will make believe they know how to do it. Luck is such a massive thing in the publishing industry. Um, luck and talent go hand in hand and sometimes luck, luck trumps talent. Yeah. Steve, we, we've seen all of the changes that have happened in publishing uh, over the last decade or so. Um, we, we, I mean, you have lived um, a, a lot of these changes and, and, and riding the waves of publishing as they've come. There is someone sitting out there today listening to this who is a storyteller, wants to tell their stories. And they might be hearing all all of this from you and just thinking that what's it's daunting now. I, I don't even know what to do. You know, um, I, I want to write a book. I, I have a book I've been working on, but, you know, Amazon's publishing millions of books per year. How do you know, is, is my story even going to matter? Yeah. Uh, what what do you say to those people? Well, we have this uh, like win the lottery kind of like situation where, you know, you win the lottery and then everybody you ever know come out of the woodwork, right? right? Same thing happened to me, right? I People follow me on Facebook and I start hearing from every person I ever went to high school with and their wives and their mothers and literally, I'm like being literal with this. Uh, hey, this, my, my wife has written a book and she really wants to publish it. Would you look at it? Well, is it sci-fi fantasy? Yeah, it's fantasy. Sure, we'll, we'll look at it. And then, of course, one of the next questions is always, well, how much money do you expect that she would be able to make on this? And my answer is a hundred dollars. I mean, like, I don't I don't know. Right. Like, because as a singular thing, writing a book does not make money. You could write a book. I think, Hank, you've written standalone books that you put out there. Nobody's cashing checks. This is not like we're not hand over fist making money with with our one book. And so I have to explain that this process looks like a job. If you want to yeah. make money doing this, you're going to have to write three books, release three books, and be ready to release your next three books within the next six months. And they're like, well, it's taken me five years to write this book. And my answer oftentimes, honestly, is then making money writing books is probably not for you. Yeah. And then I'll often turn them on to the traditional route. I'm like, if this is how you're going to do this, this particular thing – then the only option you really have is to find an agent who will query big publishers who will do a one book a year kind of a release. And they'll, you know, if it's good enough or if they see some value in you, they'll pump a whole lot of money into it. And hey, maybe you'll be the next Lieber Deauville or whatever her name is, right? Like there's, there's, there's avenues for everyone. But what we do as Athon Books is we publish science fiction and fantasy series and we do everything we can to capture the KU reader who reads two to three books a day. That's not an exaggeration. There's a lot of two to three book a day readers who by the time they've read the end of book three don't remember what happened at the beginning of book one. It's a Netflix mentality of binging yeah. that exists today. And so if you're looking for like, if you wanna be the next Jim Butcher, most times that's not gonna happen. It's it, the age of like Stephen King is gone. Um, 
people forget about the biggest, like I, you asked what changed, the authors have changed. People who were massive authors five years ago are non-existent anymore. Why? Because the industry spits you up and it chews you up and spits you out. And I'm not trying to be negative. I, I really don't. I know this is the inaugural podcast. And my last thing that I want to do is discourage people. Yeah. What I am trying to do is encourage people to understand their goals and their visions so that they don't end up discouraged in the future. Right. That is honestly the goal of saying things like this. If you want to just write books because you love writing books, just don't expect to make money doing it. And if you do recognize that you're an outlier and you're the one who uploaded their homemade cover with no editing and made $30,000 in the first month because somehow it picked up algorithm. I've, I've heard those stories. They're irreplicable, irreplicable, yeah. irreplicable. Um, nobody knows how it happened. And, and we just go, that's awesome. Proud of you. But then you got guys like Rick Partlow who had to write 28 books before Drop Trooper came along. Right. And and he's a machine. He's a machine. He's a machine. Yes. And so that's what I tell people. Um, Got to know your goals. And yeah. the first question you're asking me is about money. This whole industry is actually probably not for you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Steve, um, I, you know, I'm a massive fan of everything that you do and, and uh, Athon and, and uh, all of that. If people are just, uh, you know, know nothing about you and want to dig into all the stuff that you're up to where's the best place to to go and uh get familiar with you as a writer and you as a publisher well me as a writer check out jamiecastle.com it's j-a-i-m-e castle.com of course you could search me on amazon and audible and i've got about 16 books out that um you know if you're a fantasy sci-fi reader there's something there i think that you'll enjoy from superhero to epic fantasy to sci-fi to weird western there's just uh, you know i i do what i tell every author we have not to do and that is to jump <laughs> genres but thankfully i have athon which allows me to do things that i don't think other people should do yeah. um if you are interested in the publishing company athonbooks.com a-e-t-h-o-n books.com um and if you're interested if you're an author who's interested in submitting there is a submission guidelines on there uh if you put um, uh, um, uh, I, I don't know, uh, Hank Garner, I don't know, put Hank Garner in the, in the subject line or put dabble writer in the subject line, just something to let our team know that this isn't just a regular submission. We'll pop it up to the front of the pile, um, and make sure that it gets read and, and, and see if you got something that's, that's going to work for us. Excellent. Steve, thank you so much for, uh, being my guest on this inaugural episode and uh, we'll put links in the show notes of this so that everyone can find you. Uh, thank you, brother. I appreciate yeah, thank it. Thank you for having me.